It was several months ago that I got an email from Jason, and uh, he said, can you preach today? And I said, sure. And he gave me the text, and I was surprised at exactly how short it was. Keep alert. Stand firm in your faith. Be courageous, be strong, and let all you do be in love. And I knew that the only thing I was going to talk about was love. Where to start? And I started by thinking about the people in my life whom I love. I married late in life. I was in my middle 40s when I got married, and I was in my late 40s when we got around to starting a family. And one of the things that we ran into was that the doctors told my wife that under no circumstances was she to get pregnant, that if she did, she would probably spend the entire pregnancy in the hospital, and she might not survive the experience. I wanted a child, I wanted children, but I could not ask her to take that kind of risk. And so we looked into adoption. And that's where we ran into the second roadblock because it seems that adoption agencies think that everybody who's going to be a suitable adoption parent should be under 40. If you're over 40, they're not going to talk to you. But that wasn't the end of it. There is another route. There is something called private adoption. And this is where um, basically what happens is you become your own adoption agency. And there's a whole network of people with seminars and training and lawyers and all the rest of that. And we started attending seminars and got a lawyer and got to work. And it took about a year. But there came a time when we had made arrangements to adopt a child. And then there came that day when that child, when we got the call from the mother of the birth mother saying that she was in the hospital and the baby was being born as we speak. We called our lawyer and he went and um, had a bunch of papers he had to take into court and get signed by a judge. And we went to the hospital, and we put on those clothes that you put on and the hat and they make you wear before you can hold the baby. And we sat in the rocking chair, and we greeted this child who was going to be our son. And the doctor said, do you want to take him home today? And I hadn't even considered that as a possibility. We hadn't brought the car seat. So we had to go home and get the car seat and come back. And, and we also stopped at McDonald's because we figured we weren't going to have time for supper tonight. And we brought this child home. And I remember that day standing and looking at him in the bassinet and falling in love with him. Now something you have to understand about private adoption that is different from dealing with um, adoption agencies is 
that there is a window of time in which the birth mother has an absolute right of revocation. She can decide, I don't want to go through this, and the adoption is over. No recourse, no appeal, that's it. And at the time that we were doing this, uh, the window of time in Maryland when the birth mother had the right to revoke the adoption was 90 days. And we had known a couple that had had a revocation on day 89. And we knew what it did to them. And I knew that falling in love with this child meant that I was taking the risk. I could take the safe thing and just hang back and not fall in love and not risk having this child taken from my life three months later. But I couldn't do that. I knew that I had to risk the pain of a revocation and I had to give my love to that child that day. And so on day two of his life, when he came home, I gave my love to that child. And it was unconditional. Now, one of the things that I was very, very fortunate, I had a wonderful home growing up. My parents loved each other. My parents loved us who are children. They, we, we didn't have a lot of money, and the furniture was a bit threadbare, but the house was full of books, and it was full of music. And I always knew that my father loved me. Now, something that um, happened about the same time is there was something called the men's movement, and I got involved with that. And I think there were about six or seven different men's movements at that time. The one that I got involved with was the mythopoetic men's movement. And we started, we would do things, I remember that I got started with that by going to a drumming. I heard about it in the news and I went down to this place in Virginia and I could tell I was getting close to the right thing because from the parking lot I could hear the throbbing. And inside this place, there were 400 men with drums, big drums, small drums, tall drums, some that were beautiful, some that showed a lot of ethnic heritage. There were lots of bongo drums. And there were a bunch of people who hadn't brought drums, and they had empty plastic pails and were bounding on them. And this room was simply thumping, boom, 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 boom. And something I discovered about that is that drumming is very much like contemplative prayer. When you get into contemplative prayer, what you are trying to do is you are trying to quiet that voice in your head that keeps talking, that will not shut up, so that you can go to your quiet place to encounter God. Drumming, on the other hand, is very active, but accomplishes the same thing. When all that is going on, you simply cannot think. It's not possible. And something else that happens, too, is that you connect with all those other people. And to be in this room, connected 
by drumming for an hour is, an ex is a rare and rich experience. And after that, Robert Bly was there, and he read some of his stuff, and he told some stories. And I decided I wanted more of this, and I connected with some people, and over in Columbia, we started our own group. It wasn't 400 people. It was more like a half a dozen. But we were getting together regularly, drumming, and doing some other things. Uh, something that we would do is buy sage at the grocery store and dry it and put it up in fat bundles, and we would set fire to it and uh, honor each other by covering us with fragrant sage smoke. I also remember once that we set off the smoke detector over in the uh, Owen Brown Interfaith Center. And if you remember about two weeks ago on Pentecost when we were using incense here and set off the smoke detector, I have been setting off smoke detectors in church a lot longer than you thought. But there was something else that came out of this encounter with men. Something that really surprised and took me by, by surprise. I discovered that I was the only person in the room that knew that my father had loved me. I heard it in all kinds of forms. My father never told me he loved me. My father died without ever telling me he loved me. And there was one that really got to me. One man said, you know, I once asked my father, point blank, do you love me? And he just stood there silent. I remember a boy I met during the Navy years who did not want to go home for vacation. His father was a colonel in the Army, and this boy had to undergo inspection every morning before he went out of the house. If his bed wasn't made up properly, his father tore it up, and he had to do it again. One day, his stack of books and papers that he was supposed to take for school was not squared away, and his father threw it out the window. And he did not want to go home to encounter his father. And I thought, what a rare and wonderful thing my father had given me because I never doubted how much my father loved me. Now, my father was Scottish. And as befits somebody who was Scottish, he was a Presbyterian. And as befits somebody as a Presbyterian, he was a Calvinist. And he was a preacher, he was a minister, and he had this lovely little study which was full of bookcases and books. And there was this one beautiful book cabinet with glass doors, and up on top of it, in a place of honor, was a complete set of the writings of John Calvin, the Institutes and the Commentaries. We never talked about it, 
but I am pretty sure that my father was probably a double predestination Calvinist. But one thing that did come out of this was your relationship to God depends critically on what you believe. I call this the Charlie Tuna concept of salvation. You remember those ads on television? Charlie Tuna and the hook and the sign on it said, Sorry, Charlie, you're not good enough. And this was the message that I got. If I didn't get it right, I was not going to be saved. Now, I also told you a moment ago that our house was wonderful and full of books. We had no fewer than three sets of encyclopedias, and I have no idea how many books we had. And there was no closed shelf in this house. I could read anything. I later found out, by the way, that there was one book that my father had for giving to couples when they were getting ready to get married uh, that had a fake cover on it and was hidden in an inconspicuous place, and I never found it. But I'm sure if I had found it, he would have been all right because there were no closed shelves. And I fell in love with science. I'm a geek, and I've been a geek forever. I gave my first lecture when I was eight years old. Together with Jack Maynard and Miss Amsler's third grade class, I came in with a little box of batteries and wires and lights and switches and things, and I explained it. I think I got it right, too. I have been a geek forever, and science is just beautiful. And something my father told me was that when you are studying science, you are listening to God when God is speaking in his own voice. But unfortunately, that wasn't the only thing that I heard. Something else that I heard was, you have to believe this. You have to believe that. And if you don't believe that, you are not going to be saved. And one of the things from a surprisingly early age that I really had a problem with was this business of evolution. Because as I was reading about how the stars were formed and how the earth was formed and about the dinosaurs and all that, I was living in a community of people who were, for the most part, what today we call young earth creationists. They believed that the world was 6,000 years old and that Adam and Eve had been literal people who had been alive basically during historical time. And I couldn't do that. And it really bothered me. I think I was about 9 or 10 years old When I started sneaking off to my bedroom, I knew what to do. They told me in church, ask Jesus to come into your heart and save you and take you to be with him when he died. And I would get down and I would shut the door because I didn't want anybody to know about this. 
And I would pray to God, dear God, please come into my heart and save me. I love you. Take me to be with you when I die. There. It was done. And that's what I had to do. And I knew it. But then, there was this little bit of doubt. I wasn't sure. There was just this little doubt. And I knew that God, who knows our inmost thoughts, heard that as well. And I could just see God up there saying, "Eh, This one doesn't believe. No, 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 God, no, 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 no. I do believe, I do believe. I love you. Please come into my heart. Please save me. Please save me. And then there would be that little doubt. And I could and did spend hours up there on my knees trying to persuade God or myself or somebody that I loved God and asking him to save me. And it didn't work. It didn't work. It was going to be so, so, so embarrassing. There was going to come this day and mommy would be up in heaven and daddy would be up in heaven and my sister would be up in heaven and they would be looking down and seeing me in hell and saying, oh, isn't it sad? Alan didn't make the grade. I'm going to fast forward. It was about the time when I was in college, in my early 20s. That is when I discovered the Episcopal Church. I can even put a date on it. It was Advent Sunday in 1960. And I went to Evensong. And I fell in love. Urban Holmes has put it absolutely wonderfully. When Anglicanism is at its best, its liturgy, its poetry, its music, its life can create a world of wonder in which it is very easy to fall in love with God. And I did. And in the space of a half an hour, I wouldn't say it was love at first sight, but it was certainly love at first even song. And I had found the place that was going to be my spiritual home for the next half a century and more, and still is. I am still in love. I am still in love. And I became very active. Uh, I learned to be an acolyte and was licensed as a reader. And in due course, I took a job as the organist and choir master at a, a church in Chicago, And I thought this was going to be where I was going to spend the rest of my life. But the problem with this was, although I had found my home, I was still letting those people who thought of God as an angry God, a God whose love was conditional, and a God who required me to believe things that were not believable, And I struggled with this. And it all came to a head about 10 years later. 
I was over living in a little apartment in Japan and still struggling with this. And I remember sitting there one day and I said, you know, I really don't believe in God. I really don't. I almost started saying it again. No, 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 God, I, 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 I don't mean that. I didn't say, I, I really do love you. I please. No, 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 I really don't. I really don't. I really don't believe in God. And I was not ready for what happened next. I wouldn't have been surprised if a thunderbolt had come out of the sky. I didn't expect it, but I wouldn't have been surprised. What did happen was I felt this absolutely incredible sense of peace. I felt that a burden had been lifted from my heart. I don't think I had ever felt so at ease in my life. And I said, okay, that's done. For the next 20 years, if you had asked me, I would have said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. And I didn't. I went into business. I put in the 14, 16, 18-hour days. I knew the seven-day weeks and I had a lifetime when I sometimes took two weeks off for the holidays, but not always. And I achieved a modest success. And as I decided it is time to start a family and start getting a life that's my own. As I said, I married late. And I did. And one of the things that was missing from my life was music. I was an organist. And most of the organs that you have available, they're very big and they're very heavy, and most of them are in churches. And I didn't have one, and I didn't go to church. So I scouted around, and I found an organ. It was not new. I had it installed in my study, and I started practicing again. And for the record, I sounded terrible. But I practiced and I got better. It happens. Now, there was something from my first incarnation uh, when I discovered the Episcopal Church. Presbyterians and Episcopalians are different. And one of the ways they are different has to do with the matter of the Gloria. Presbyterians say the Gloria once in the middle of the service and get it over with. Episcopalians tack it on to everything. You say the Psalms and they're going to tack a Gloria onto the end of it. And not just the whole business of Psalms, they're going to tack the Gloria onto each Psalm. Your service has a number of canticles in it which you sing and they're going to tack a Gloria onto the end of each one of those canticles. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. You know it. And back then in the 60s, I thought, you know, 
I'm going to put a doxology on my practice sessions. And at first, what I would do is I would be doing my practicing, and then I would play a doxology, switch off the organ, and go home. But as time got on, I started getting more adventurous, and I started improvising. And I would take some hymn or something like that that really was um, something that was on my mind that day, and I would start improvising on that. And that was my way of ending my practice sessions with a doxology. And now I was thinking, you know, I wonder if I could still do that. And I gave it a try, and I don't remember why I chose it. But the hymn that I chose just out of thin air was the hymn tune St. Anne. You probably know it as, Oh God, Our Help in Ages Past. And I remembered what key it was in, and I remembered all the chords, and I started playing, and I started improvising. And in my head as I was doing this, I heard the words, not the first verse, but the third. Before the hills in order stood, or earth received her frame. From everlasting thou art God, to endless years the same. And I lost it. I lost it. I started crying. I was really glad that there was nobody there in my study with me to see this because I stopped playing and I just sat there. God, I don't understand this. I don't understand this. I don't believe in you, but I love you so much. I don't understand. I knew, I knew that I needed help. And I knew an Episcopal priest retired. His name was John Lobel. And I went to him and approached him and said, would you help me with this? And I remember the first time we talked, he said, Alan, tell me about this God you don't believe in. And I told him about this angry God, this God who was, whose love was conditional, this God who could look down on a nine-year-old kid and say, this one isn't going to make it. And he said, that's strange. I don't believe in that God either. Tell me more. This was about the time in my life that my son was coming into our life. And I knew that I had to love him absolutely unconditionally. And I thought about it as, how can it be that I understand love better than God? Any God that I know love better than is not big enough. For me. I'm sorry.
what I discovered is that God had been part of me all of my life. I fell in love with the 139th Psalm. Let me read it to you. For you yourself created my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will thank you because I am marvelously made. Your works are wonderful and I know it well. My body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret and woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my limbs yet unfinished in the womb. All of them were written in your book. They were fashioned day by day when as yet there was none of them. How deep I find your thoughts, O God, how great the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would be more in number than the sand. To count them all, my lifespan would need to be like yours. I love God. But you know something? I think in the scheme of things, that is probably something that is almost unimportant. What is important is that God loves me, that I am God's beloved, and that takes my breath away. You are the object of God's love. You are God's beloved. One of my favorite verses is that one in Romans. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing that you can do. There is nothing that you have been There is nothing that you can be. There is nothing that you can think. There is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Okay, I have digressed just a little bit. I'm supposed to be talking about Corinthians. Keep alert, stand firm in the faith, 
Be courageous. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. That is not telling us about the life that we should be experiencing. Those are marching orders. That is something that is telling us what we should be doing. And how do we do this? One of my favorite verses in all the Bible, maybe the one that is the favorite of all, is that verse in Micah. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and walk humbly before the Lord your God. These hands are the only hands that God has in the world. It is our job to take this love that is within us and to bring it into the world to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly before the Lord our God. I'll just mention one thing. Uh, I'm an Episcopalian. You know that. We have right one, the old prayer book, every Sunday for about the past 110 years. I would hear it. Hear the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Keep alert. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love.